Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, Episode 92, No Other God. Today I'm interviewing uh, Dr. John Frame uh, to discuss open theism, the subject of a book that he wrote back in 2001 called No Other God. Uh, you'll recall that a few days ago I published the first part of three episodes of a debate between my friend Mike Felker and a Jehovah's Witness on the uh, eternal fate of New, Christian, uh, New Covenant Christians. We'll come back to part two of that in the next couple of days so that you'll have both of those episodes to serve as a context for the questions that I've asked you to write. Please do listen to those parts of the debate and email me any questions that you have for either, uh, for either Mike or for Fred Torres, the Jehovah's Witness that he's debating. Uh, but as I said, today I'm going to uh, uh, separate those two parts of the debate with this interview with Dr. Frame. Now, I, I do want to speak personally a little bit in, in this monologue before we get into playing today's promo and, and move into uh, the interview. Uh, some of you who've been listening for a long time know that uh, I've dabbled in the, com- the world of competitive powerlifting. Um, I haven't done that for something like over a year now, uh, and I've really lacked any motivation to uh, get back into shape and to eat properly and stuff like that, so I've, I've put on some, some pounds. Uh, I was hoping that agreeing to do this uh, live public debate moderation uh, between D.D. Warren and Alan Kirshner uh, next year would be enough to motivate me to begin to lose that weight again, but that hasn't proved to be the case yet. However, I do want to announce that uh, beginning now, I'm training for what I hope to uh, participate in uh, in a year from now. Uh, it was something that was suggested to me by a friend of mine who's planning on competing. Uh, he, he suggested it to me a few days ago, and I, and I checked the website out, and it just looks amazing. Uh, if you get a chance, go to SpartanRace.com. That's Spartan, as in the uh, the subjects of the movie 300, <laughs> S-P-A-R-T-A-N, Race.com. Uh, and uh, there's basically it's a race of various distances. There's a three-mile version, a, you know eight-mile version, and so forth. But it's not simply a race. It's also an obstacle course with uh, uh, climbing up, you know, muddy hills under razor wire, uh, climbing up ropes and, and all sorts of stuff like that. And for whatever reason, maybe it's the competitive athletic spirit uh, that I have or, or, you know, who knows what it is. But that's really invigorated me, really motivated me to start getting back into shape and, and eating properly. And I've already begun to do that. So, um you know, get a chance to check that website out. Be praying that I would remain motivated in part because of this uh, this race. Pray that I wouldn't get injured. Pray that, um, uh, you know, pr- just pray that I would be uh, faithful to, to God in the way that I treat my body in terms of how I eat and in terms of exercising. And if it's the Lord's will, if the Lord is willing, pray that I would uh, have the opportunity to compete in this event. I, I don't plan on winning. I don't think that I have any chance of winning, uh, but I'd like to be able to finish the race. That would be an enormous accomplishment. So uh, as I said, pl- please keep me in your prayers. And I guess that's all I really wanted to say today. So we'll go ahead and we'll play the next promo in my rotation, which is for uh, my friend, Dr. Glenn Peoples. Say hello to my little friend podcast. Hi, this is Glenn Peoples from Say Hello to My Little Friend, aka the Beretta Cast. Tune in to hear discussions of philosophy, theology, and even the odd bit of politics from a Christian point of view that doesn't necessarily fit in with the crowd. Search for Say Hello to My Little Friend at the iTunes Store, or check us out online, beretta-online.com. As many of you know, uh, Glenn has been influential for me in a couple of areas, <laughs> uh, much to many of your chagrin, I'm sure. Uh, in other areas, he has not. You know, I have some major disagreements with him in, in some particular areas, areas that I consider to be fairly major. Uh, but I really respect Glenn. I think that he's... Um, uh, I, I think that he does some great work in his podcast and at his blog. Uh, in areas you disagree with him, uh, I still think that you'll find what he has to say challenging and thought-provoking. And in areas where we're on the same page, uh, I think you'll find him to be a powerful defender of the Christian faith and, and of uh, Christian ethics and morality. Uh, so I would encourage you to check his podcast and blog out at, as he said in the promo there, beretta-online.com. And with that, let's go ahead and move into today's interview. There is no other 
I'm joined today by my guest, Dr. John Frame. Dr. Frame has served on the faculty of Westminster Theological Seminary and was a founding faculty member of their California campus. He served as professor on the faculty of Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, where he is now the J.D. Trimble Chair of Systematic Theology and Philosophy. He's written widely in the areas of theolo- uh, theology, apologetics, ethics, and worship, and is here today to discuss open theism, the subject of his 2001 book, No Other God. Thanks so much for joining me today, Dr. Frame. Good to be with you, Chris, and with your listeners. If you don't mind, I'd like to begin by getting to know just a little bit about you, uh, beginning with your testimony, if that's okay. Uh, a short biography of you at monergism.com says that you became a fellow a follower of Jesus Christ at about 13 or 14 years old. Can you uh, tell us about that, where, where you stood prior to that, and what led to the change? Well, I grew up in a family that uh, was accustomed to going to church for several generations. Uh, at about the time I was... Uh, Oh, four or five years old, uh, they they were not going to church, but they thought that the children ought to have a religious education, so mm. they took us to Sunday school, and it just happened that the Sunday school that they took us to uh, belonged to an evangelical congregation that understood the gospel and preached it, and uh, so uh, I, I was exposed to a lot of really solid Bible teaching and uh, and theology, and uh, by the time I was 13 or 14, I heard the, uh, I, I really came to an understanding that this was for me, that I had to uh, recognize myself as a sinner, and uh, uh, I needed to uh, have Jesus as my Lord and, and Savior, and uh, the youth ministry of the church played a major role there, and also the choir program. I sometimes say that the youth ministry got it into my head and the uh, choir program got it into my heart. <laughs> yeah, that's that's awesome. Uh, well, yeah. well since, since then, can you sketch us a little bit of an outline of your educational background, your professional career, where it is that you've studied, what degrees you've received, and where you've taught, and, and what it is that you do today? Yeah, I went to Princeton University and uh, graduated there with a philosophy major in 1961. Then I went on to Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia and uh, studied with largely the old faculty there, the ones that have been teaching since the 30s, Cornelius Van Til and uh, John Murray and uh, uh, people like that. And then uh, I did some graduate work at Yale. I got uh, uh, two master's degrees there, but didn't finish my dissertation, so I didn't uh, earn the doctorate there, although I was in the doctoral program. But uh, I uh, studied in the philosophical theology area there, and uh, then I was called to uh, teach at Westminster, beginning at uh, 1968. Uh, I taught systematic theology and later on uh, apologetics and uh, philosophy there for 12 years. I was there from uh, 68 to 80, and then I went to uh, California to start a uh, help start a daughter campus of Westminster in uh, Escondido, California, near San Diego. And I was there for 20 years, and then at, uh, in 2000, I left there and uh, came to uh, Reform Theological Seminary in Orlando, Florida, and that's where I've taught ever since uh, mm-hmm. uh, in uh, systematics and, uh, and philosophy, uh, apologetics, uh, ethics, that kind of thing. What do you do? Is I'm just curious. What do you do as the J.D. Trimble Chair of Systematic Theology and Philosophy? Yeah, well, uh, a lot of us have uh, have chairs that uh, bear the names of people. I'm afraid I haven't taken the trouble to get to know the Trimble family, but <laughs> I'm very grateful to them for supporting my teaching uh, here. And uh, they there there has been a Trimble um, chair for many years before I arrived. It's usually uh, given to one of the systematic theologians, and uh, I'm I'm very uh, honored by it. Hmm. Well, you've written on a wide variety of topics, but what would you say are your you know, specialties, your areas of expertise? What are you most passionate about? Well, I majored in philosophy at uh, Princeton, and so I've always been kind of uh, into uh, philosophical topics, which of course include apologetics, uh, which uses philosophy to defend the Christian faith quite a bit. Uh, but... Uh, for the most part, most of my teaching and writing, as it turns out, has been in the area of systematic theology. I, I started off teaching that at the Westminster in 68, and uh, 
I've uh, uh, well, I taught I've taught four courses basically in the systematics area of doctrine of God, doctrine of Scripture, um, uh, <coughs> ethics, and uh, the uh, well, I guess that's three areas. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I've also taught history of philosophy and apologetics, and so on. Uh, those subjects have. Uh, been developed in the books. Basically, my books are expansions of my class lectures. Hmm. Um, so I have a book on the doctrine of the war, uh, doctrine of knowledge of God, which is a theory of knowledge uh, derived from the Bible, uh, as I understand it. And then uh, the doctrine of God and the doctrine of uh, the Christian life, which is my ethics course and. Uh, in 2010, I, I published one called Doctrine of the Word of God, which uh, amounts to my lectures on Scripture and uh, and uh, infallibility, inerrancy, that kind of thing. Hmm. And uh, then uh, they're, they're, I, I have kind of an interest in worship, too. I'm a musician, and uh, so I wrote a couple of books on worship back in the mid-'90s. And uh, so there, there have been various things. Uh, Doctrine of uh, the Book, no other god which we're talking about today is a uh, kind of an abbreviation of my larger book called the doctrine of god hmm. and uh, no other god uh, takes a number of uh, sections on god's foreordination and the uh, relationship to human freedom and his uh, foreknowledge and so on and uh, uh, and uh, adds that to some material on the uh, open theist writers so uh, it's uh, it should be taken together with the uh, larger book on the doctrine of God. Yeah, I'll make sure to uh, link in the show notes to to both of those books. But I'm curious, what motivated you to take some of the work that you were preparing in your doctrine of God and and put it in this book, No Other God, specifically for open theism? What, what motivated you? What, what was what was your hope in in getting that book out? Well, everybody was talking about open theism in those days. I think the discussion is still going, but it's. Uh, uh, leveled off some, um, but there were a number of uh, books that were being written on open theism, and I thought, well, you know, I'm I'm writing on topics, uh, just the same topics that they're all talking about. So I made a proposal to my publisher and said, you know, I, I could uh, distill some of the material from my larger book and uh, add to it some uh, material on the open theist books and uh, come up with, I think, a decent. Uh, account of open theism, so uh, that, that's where, mm. where this book arose. Well, now, I don't want to give away too much about some of the things we're going to be talking about, but but I'm curious, why the title No Other God? Where's that come from? Well, you know, titles come from publishers rather than <laughs> authors. I, I, uh, my own working title was simply Open Theism, a Biblical Critique, but uh, I guess they didn't think that was jazzy enough or sexy <laughs> enough or something, so, so they... Uh, they came up with two titles. They they said I could choose between these. One was uh, "Let God Be True" from Romans uh, three, and the other one is uh, "Let God Be True, Let uh, and Every Man a Liar." You know, and the other one was "No Other God." And I, I like both of them. These are both uh, 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 "Let God Be True" is one of my favorite Bible verses. But I mm -hmm. thought probably that would be better to. Uh, uh, more applicable to a book on the Word of God and divine revelation and so on, rather than a book on the doctrine of God. So I told them I, I thought uh, probably no other God would be a better one. But they, they would both have been appropriate, because I do think that open theism uh, calls in question the veracity of God, uh, mm. uh, as well as uh, his foreknowledge, and we may get to that later. Yeah, definitely. Well, before we talk about just what open theism is, for those listeners who aren't familiar with it, uh, what it is that it teaches, who are some of the noteworthy proponents of this view? What are some of the names that we should be keeping an eye open for? Well, Gregory Boyd um, writes, a uh, pastor in Minnesota, I think, writes uh, quite a bit on this subject and is still uh, writing uh, today. Uh, Clark Pinnock was kind of a pioneer uh, in uh, open theism, and he died several years ago. Uh, and uh, oh, who else? John Sanders, I, I discussed quite a bit in the book, and uh, uh, he's, uh, I think, still writing. I, I haven't followed him uh, too well. I, I 
be honest with you, I haven't uh, given a whole lot of attention to the uh, uh, discussion in the last uh, 10 years. Mm. I, I basically gave it my best shot in the book. And, uh, <laughs> so if people want to find out what I think, they can still go there. Sure. Well, what sort of impact do you think that this movement has had uh, on the church at large, particularly since you wrote about it 10 years ago? How, how would you characterize its success and influence? Well, it, it was seeming to have a lot of influence back then, and uh, uh, I, I don't know. I think, as I said, I think it's kind of leveled off since that time. I don't hear as much about it. I don't see as many books and articles published about it. I don't hear people taking it seriously in the church and, and so on and so forth. Uh, I don't. Uh, there, there used to be some ecclesiastical controversies about whether... Uh, somebody should be teaching on such and such a denomination or such and such a college and uh, I, I don't hear much about that anymore uh, mm. I, I imagine it's still you know there's still some pockets where it's being being taught but I, I think you know basically the evangelical church rejected it ten years ago I mean, mm. there was a controversy in the evangelical theological society as to whether open theism was uh, appropriate uh, um, for ETS members, and and basically uh, it was kind of complicated, you know, there was, uh, uh, it, it was, uh, well, uh, the, the politics of it was a little bit difficult <laughs> to remember and difficult to describe, but uh, Roger Nicole basically led a, uh, and people like Bruce Ware and uh, uh, Tom Schreiner and uh, uh, others, the Southern Baptist group, uh, a lot of them took a very firm stand uh, against open theism, and, uh, and and the result was was basically that uh, uh, the the uh, evangelical theological society re rejected open theism, and uh, uh, Clark Pinnock actually apologized to some extent, uh, <laughs> promised at least to rethink some of his ideas, and uh, thank the the group for its. Uh, serious deliberation on, on the subject, so huh. it, uh, I, I think it's basically understood now that open theism is not an, an evangelical position. You won't find it in mainstream evangelical churches, but you, you never know when it will pop up. I mean, sure. it was, I think this is essentially the view of the Socinians in the 16th century, and uh, from time to time that the uh, it sprung up, and somebody will probably revive it. Uh, uh, not in my lifetime, but in the <laughs> lifetimes of some who are listening. So uh, you just uh, gotta gotta understand uh, where things are are going. I mean, the, the number of errors that people can come up with are fairly limited, and so they keep going back to the old ones. <laughs> yeah, true. <clears throat> well, in a minute, I'm going to ask you to summarize uh, the doctrines of open theism for us. But first, you begin your book by explaining that there's a little bit of a difference between what you call the rhetoric and the reality. So so let's first talk about the rhetoric. You, you write that they've not always been clear about what it is that they believe, seemingly more interested in uh, persuasion than clarity. Can you tell us about that? Well, the rhetoric has to do with this uh, idea of openness, you know, that uh, uh, in traditional theology, you have a God who uh, uh, has everything all locked up, you know, every, everything is closed, he knows the future, and what happens is what's going to happen, and there's no freedom, and you can't change anything, and uh, so on and so forth, and, uh, and openness now is the idea that anything can happen, and God can uh, bring, uh, you know, uh, God even God doesn't know what's going to happen in the future. So uh, we are, and our freedom is completely uh, unhindered, and so we can do most anything that uh, uh, there is to do. And uh, so, uh, and, and you know, God can change. God can become something different from what He is. So uh, that sounds to a lot of people today. Uh, now, as I point out in the book, I, I think that would be kind of horrible. <laughs> Sometimes it's better to be closed than open, you know. If you're driving uh, 60 miles an hour down a highway, you, you want the doors to be closed sure. rather than open. I mean, some, sometimes it's uh, better to have uh, closed uh, conditions, and sometimes it's better to have open conditions, and we better uh, uh, not act as if openness is always good. But anyway, that's the rhetorical debate that uh, goes on. I see. 
Well, what, what is the reality behind the rhetoric? Do you, what, what do you think are sort of the main contentions of open theism? Well, the main contention is that uh, God does not uh, know the future perfectly. Uh, he doesn't know the future exhaustively. There's things that are going to happen in the future that God does not anticipate because, of course, uh, man's free will cannot be predicted. So even God doesn't know what man will freely choose to do. Uh, this is a particular concept of freedom that the open theists have subscribed to. So uh, the uh, uh, and, and, of course, uh, whatever follows from that, I mean, that means that God uh, cannot uh, uh, cannot reliably predict the future, um, which screws up the concept of prophecy mm. considerably. Uh, but uh, that uh, is, uh, and, uh, that and all its implications, of course, uh, uh, is, is what uh, open theism amounts to. I see. Well, <clears throat> you explain in your book that open theists often represent their movement as if it's uh, very contemporary, uh, but you think that in certain ways its roots can be traced back to ancient Greek philosophy, and as you mentioned a moment ago, to Sassinianism. How is that? Well, without wanting to get too technical, uh, the, the ancient Greeks, of course, uh, uh, if you study the history of philosophy, you know about Epicurus, who said that mm. uh, when... Uh, little chunks of matter are flying around and they, they generally fall in a vertical path every now and then one, one will swerve for no reason at all and uh, that's the way uh, atoms bump into one another and, and that's what forms them into big clumps and larger clumps and eventually turns them into planets and, uh, and, uh, and cities and human beings and so on um, and, and that I think I mean totally unpredictable chance events were very much a part of uh, Greek philosophy uh, in Plato and Aristotle. You have the, the concept of matter, which is uh, completely unknowable and unpredictable, and you can only uh, uh, make, make some judgment about it. You can only know matter by means of form, and uh, form is utterly knowable and utterly predictable, but uh, uh, how could a changeless form... Uh, uh, govern uh, changeable matter. Uh, so that the uh, and then of course you get down to uh, uh, the Socinians and the Socinians were building upon uh, some models of freedom from uh, the medieval period. The Church Fathers uh, uh, held a view which they called autexusion, which is uh, uh, kind of like this kind of freedom, and uh, uh, it, it appears in uh, uh, some of the medieval philosophers, you know, like uh, William of Ockham and uh, uh, John Duns Scotus, and then gets into uh, Socinianism and and uh, on down to the present present day. Now, uh, so uh, not all of these uh, question God's foreknowledge, hmm. but the Socinians did, and the Socinians held. Uh, pretty much the same views about God's foreknowledge that uh, the open theists hold today. And, of course, uh, if you go back to the beginning of the 20th century, you have process philosophy, uh, Alfred North Whitehead and, uh, and Charles Hartshorn and, and people like that who uh, uh, also uh, uh, held to a kind of uh, finite God, a God who's limited by uh, by. Uh, his inability to see outside of time. <laughs> so uh, that uh, there, there's a long philosophical tradition of all of this, and uh, uh, I think it's just wrong uh, for people to say that this is a new and modern kind of movement. We're just wrestling with the same kinds of issues that we've wrestled with for many centuries. Sure. Well, and, and another area of influence that you've identified in your book are, are somewhat contemporary movements which seem to require that we change our theology based on modern emphases on human freedom. What, what were some of these movements, and what do you see as the dangers of interpreting scripture and theology through the lens of uh, modern thought? Well, there, uh, this is a tendency that uh, we've seen in many kinds of so-called liberal theology. Liberal theology began in the 17th century, basically. I think Socinianism is an example of it, but uh, uh, liberal theology is, is basically uh, trying to uh, develop a theology that's not uh, 
uh, anchored to the scriptures is the Word of God. So, mm. uh, you, so what do you anchor it to? I mean, you anchor it to the, the newest philosophy, whatever that may be, and some of them have uh, uh, taken their cue from uh, Immanuel Kant, some have taken their cue from Hegel, some have taken their cue from uh, uh, Schleiermacher, and uh, on and on it goes. But uh, in, in more recent future, uh, you know, there's always a tendency for some Christian theologian to pick up on some general cultural preoccupation and try to turn it into a form of Christian theology. I suppose the most common example is uh, that of liberation theology, which uh, builds off of Marxism and uh, which uh, tries to uh, develop uh, Christian theology as a uh, uh, a way of uh, securing po political uh, equality for everybody in a Marxist uh, uh, kind of kind of direction, and of course that's based on a kind of freedom too. It's uh, the idea of freedom, meaning economic freedom, right? Uh, and uh, that's of course what the, the politicians like to talk about. And uh, uh, I, I think the biblical concept of freedom is very different from that. But uh, but uh, people are always trying to. Uh, uh, take uh, uh, cultural ideals by, by uh, you know, if someone says that uh, women should should be uh, equal to men in society, well, the theologian will say that women ought to, to be ordained as officers in the church. Or if somebody uh, says that homosexuals ought to be respected, well, some theologian will say that homosexuals should be ordained to office in the church and, uh, and be... Uh, uh, treated just like everybody else. So all of this, uh, this is just a common modern tendency, and I think open theism is just part of that. Yeah. You know, I, I can understand the desire to, to, to understand how Scripture is relevant to any given day and age. I think it always is. But, but it seems to me that the danger of reinterpreting everything through a modern lens is you have no absolute truth to stand on at all. I, I, I just don't get this... Um, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't get this modern tendency, but anyway. Uh, one of the areas of debate that you identify between open theists and classic theists has to do with whether passages that talk about God changing his mind are to be taken literally or figuratively. Uh, open theists seem to insist that they're simply letting these passages speak for themselves, what, what you identify as, as what they call a straightforward exegesis. But one thing that really troubles me, and, I, and I'm interested to know if you feel the same way, is that it seems that they're dismissing the role and importance of systematic theology and in interpreting any text in light of the whole of Scripture. Do you share that concern? Yes, I do. I, I think we uh, uh, have to read that basically uh, the point is not so much that systematic theology is all that great. The point is that uh, we need to read Scripture in the light of Scripture. And uh, so when one Bible text uh, speaks in one way, we need to compare that with uh, other passages that deal with the same uh, Topics and that, of course, is the root of systematic theology. That's mm. where systematic theology comes from. But that's more, more fundamental. Yeah. Well, well, let's talk about some of what seem to be the major premises, uh, premises in the case for open theism, beginning with the issue of God's love. Uh, I, I was a little intrigued and surprised by the title of your fourth chapter, Is Love God's Most Important Attribute? Uh, and I say I was a little intrigued because I wasn't sure how this played into the debate. Before I ask you to answer that question, what do open theists argue are the implications of love as what they believe to be God's most important attribute? Well, they understand love to be... Uh to include such things as vulnerability, uh, and again, that comes out of modern culture, you know, that comes out of modern philosophy, that somebody who, who's, uh, in, in, who loves somebody else has to be able to be wounded and hurt by that other person, or it's not true love. So uh, they, uh, uh, and, and of course, uh, if you have true love for somebody, then you're willing to change for that person, so they think that the to say that God is love means that God is changeable and that God is adaptable and that God is willing to change his plans for for other people and that uh, uh, I, I think that's a concept of love that uh, comes uh, as I say from from modern culture rather than from the Bible I think there's some truth in it when it's applied to human love but uh, you know we really have to look carefully at what the Bible says about about God's love and right. Uh, for one thing, in the, 
Ephesians 1, we're told that God has loved us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So God's love is, is an eternal love. Uh, uh, it's greater than any changeable love might be. And uh, God is uh, true to his uh, to the ones that uh, he has loved. So uh, love is not quite the same thing as the sentimental version <laughs> of the um, I think the open theists uh, uh, adopt. Sure. Well, but, but let's let's say for the sake of argument that they're right about the preeminence of God's love. Would that necessarily lead to their view? Would, would classical theism remain viable even if love is God's most important attribute? Would class? Well, uh, yeah, I think so. Uh, uh, it depends on what you mean by love. Obviously, you have to define that love in a biblical way. But I do think, uh, you know, certainly love is God's uh, essence, if you want to use that terminology. First uh, John uh, 4, 8 uh, and 4, 16 say that God is love, and uh, certainly that, that puts love at the uh, center of uh, who God is. Now, I think we have to balance that off by remembering that uh, God is also light, First uh, John one five and God is also Spirit uh, John four twenty four and uh, so uh, you know in the Johannine writings uh, uh, love is not the only thing that's identified with God's essence in, in classical theology of course all of God's attributes tell us who God is mm-hmm. uh, all of God's attributes in that sense uh, are identical with His essence and so uh, uh, and certainly holiness you know when right. the, uh, angels in Isaiah 6 are crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You can't uh, say that holiness is less important than love or something <laughs> like that. That's just kind of kind of silly. So I, I would say that, uh, you know, Scripture tells us that uh, there are many attributes of God that uh, are defining attributes. They define who He is. They define His, uh, his essence. And certainly one of those is love. And we, uh, in Orthodox theology, uh, theology outside of open theism, we have to do justice to that. I, I do think that classical theology has uh, done a pretty good job in, uh, in uh, understanding the implications of the fact that God is love. Sure. Yeah. Well, the other major premise that seems to serve as the lens through which they read all of Scripture, and this has come up a few times in our conversation already, the, the, the idea of freedom, uh, is their belief in libertarian free will. For, for those listeners that may not understand the, the terminology, just what is libertarian free will, and why is it so important to open theism? The libertarian free will means that uh, uh, it is always possible to, when you're choosing something, when you choose to do something, it's always possible to choose the opposite. So uh, if I uh, choose to uh, stay in this room as opposed to going home and having lunch, uh, <laughs> if, I, if I choose to do this, uh, it's, it's equally possible for me to do the other thing. I'm not prevented, I'm not forced to choose anything I do, and I'm not forced to do it uh, by God. I'm not forced to do it by my own nature, by my own character. I'm not even forced to do it by my own desires. Now, Mm. at the moment, here I am talking to you on the phone, and that's something that I desire to do, but my desires don't cause me to do this. I could just as easily uh, go off and do what I don't desire, uh, which uh, uh, doesn't doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, if I choose to go home and have lunch, uh, that's, that's what I desire, and I, uh, I follow that desire rather than this other one, but, uh, the, uh, but, but that's it. I mean, it's, uh, it's free, free choice apart from any constraint whatsoever, and uh, I, I, I just don't think that there is such a thing. I don't think Scripture teaches it, and uh, I certainly have never experienced that in my own life. Yeah, and we're, we're going to go on to talk about that in a second, but, wh- but why is this uh, this kind of free will in their perspective? Why is it so important to uh, to open theists? What, what does it have to say in their view about responsibility and, and other relevant issues? Yeah, there, there are very basically two arguments in favor of libertarian freedom, and these, again, come, really come out of secular philosophy. I mean, if you really want to uh, hear them presented in the best most cogent way, uh, go to somebody like C.A. Campbell or uh, or H.D. Lewis or somebody like that. Uh, but uh, the, the basically two arguments: one is that uh, 
libertarian freedom is necessary for moral responsibility. Hmm. That is to say, uh, you can't be responsible uh, for making a choice uh, unless it's unless you're absolutely free uh, to do that or not to do it. Um, and uh, that's that's something we can argue about. I don't think that that's uh, uh, true. I don't think that morality is based on libertarian freedom at all. I think we usually assume that uh, there are causes for people's behavior. And uh, uh, if we don't assume that, uh, then the person's behavior just becomes accidental. And, of course, <laughs> precisely they're not responsible for that at all. I mean, if I, uh, <laughs> uh, if, if I don't... Uh, if, if my staying in this room, which I'm morally obligated to do since I've agreed to this interview, uh, <laughs> I have to keep my word, okay, so that's a moral moral issue. Uh, but if I get up and walk away because of some quirk, something I don't even desire, maybe some, <laughs> some kind of a seizure that's, uh, you know, affecting my brain, uh, then nobody would hold me responsible for that. I mean, that's just a crazy thing that happens to people at times, but uh, uh, I'm responsible only if I have a desire that's, uh, that's uh, affected by uh, my moral uh, uh, standards and norms, and based on that desire, I stay here and, and do my duty. So I don't think that... Uh, and then the other argument for libertarian freedom is simply intuition. Mm. You know, people say, well, I feel as though I, I could always choose the opposite of what I choose. And I, I, I can understand that. I mean, certainly, I, I don't uh, disparage feeling the way some preachers do. I think that feeling is important, but I don't think that we ever have a feeling of libertarian freedom. When you understand that libertarian freedom is a choice without any causes at all, I don't think you ever have a feeling that you're doing something without any causes. Sure. I mean, how would you know? I mean, there are unconscious <laughs> causes, there are causes in your nervous system, there's all kinds of causes that you don't have access to. And how, how could you possibly uh, have an intuition of, uh, of whether your, uh, your decision has no causes or not? So I think that's, uh, that's kind of a nonsensical uh, assertion. I think so too, and I'll add that I actually think that intuition oftentimes screams against that idea. I mean, how often do we say things like, oh, there's just no way I could do that? And what we really mean is there's no way I would ever want to do that enough to actually be willing to do it. So we, well, rec we recognize that our desires uh, do limit our freedom. Uh, so I just don't, yeah, I don't buy that at all. Yeah, well, when, when you're brought into a courtroom, you know, the uh, one. One thing is uh, the question as to whether you robbed a bank uh, uh, and you can be held responsible for it is, well, you, were you motivated to do it? Do you have the, the motive as well as the opportunity and the ability? And uh, if you have no motive, if it's just a crazy thing that, that happens, then they'll, they'll put you in psychiatric treatment perhaps, <laughs> but they won't uh, throw you in jail. So our, our legal system always... Uh, assumes that people are morally responsible if they have uh, an adequate motive, if they have a desire that uh, grounds and, and causes their conduct to take place. Yeah. Well, now, of course, open theists aren't the only believers in libertarian free will. Uh, Arminians and Molinists believe in it, too. Why is Arminianism or Molinism not enough for open theists? Why, why don't they think that God can perfectly know the future, even if libertarian free choices are its cause? Yeah, well, Arminianism is in kind of a bind because uh, Arminians say that uh, God, uh, that uh, human choices uh, can be free in the libertarian sense, but they also believe that God has perfect foreknowledge of them. Now, uh, here I am uh, getting interviewed in my office. Uh, on the Arminian view, the classical Arminian view, God knew. He didn't make me do it, but uh, he knew, uh, well, let's say, 75 years ago, I'm 73, <laughs> God knew 75 years ago that I would be giving this interview. Now, uh, that, that means, I mean, if God knew that 75 years ago, then nothing could prevent this from happening. Yeah. Okay? 
in what God knows must take place. So what is there that, that determines this? Now, uh, a Calvinist would say, uh, I, I had to be here. Uh, the necessity of my being here uh, comes from the fact that uh, God foreordained it before the foundation of the world. The Arminian would say, no, God didn't foreordain it. Well, then why is it that this is so certain that he could know it uh, infallibly? And the Arminian has no good answer for that. Uh, I mean, is, is there some other cause than God that uh, necessitates that I would be here giving this interview? Uh, uh, you know, no Christian wants to say that. I mean, that's kind of invoking an occult uh, uh, cause, maybe some kind of a uh, causality that... Uh, runs alongside of gods and uh, uh, that gets you into all kinds of trouble. Uh, nobody wants to say that, uh, uh, but it certainly isn't pure chance. I mean, it doesn't just happen because uh, God knew it uh, 75 years ago, so there must be something that uh, makes me uh, uh, be here for this interview. So uh, uh, the, the Arminian can go either way. I mean, he can either say that uh, uh, God, through his knowing or through something else, uh, that God made it happen, in which case he becomes a Calvinist, <laughs> or he denies his traditional view that God knows everything in advance, and then he becomes an open theist. So the, the Arminian, the classical Arminian position has this contradiction uh, wrapped up in it that has to be resolved in one way or another, and of course the uh, some people uh, resolve it in the Calvinist direction, and other people uh, become open theists. And I think this is the one one major motivation for open theism. Uh, most of the open theists uh, come out of a traditional Arminian background, and they're not satisfied uh, with that contradiction, and they're trying to resolve it by, uh, by uh, denying the uh, foreknowledge of God. Let's see, I think there's another part of your question... Oh, uh, no, I think so. I, I mentioned Molinism in there, but I think that the oh. basic idea is the same. So, I mean, basically what you're saying is that open theists are those who take libertarian free will to its logical conclusion. Is that oh, fair to yeah. say? Yeah. yeah, this is the main driving engine of open theism, I think. It's to, to try to uh, uh, make uh, libertarian freedom their most significant presupposition and uh, understand all the rest of theology, all the rest of biblical teaching, consistently with libertarian freedom. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about your critique of uh, libertarianism. You offer 17 points of critique in, in your book. We're not going to go through those all, but the first of them is what you liken to an avalanche of texts uh, proving God's exhaustive foreordination of the future. Can you share just a few of what you think are the clearest of those texts? Well, uh, sure. Uh, again, uh, I, I think that the uh, the very definition of prophecy that we have in uh, Deuteronomy 18, for example, is that the prophet will be able to uh, uh, predict the future, uh, and examples of this in the Bible are often in, in very close detail, uh, because uh, he has the Word of God in his mouth, and that assumes that God knows the future, and God knows the, the future in great detail. But, of course, uh, you know, uh, there are lots of examples then in the Scripture of God uh, uh, saying, uh, uh, well, for, for example, uh, Noah's children, uh, when uh, at the end of Noah's life, Noah is clearly a prophet, and he uh, states what's going to happen to Shem and to uh, Ham and to Japheth and to Canaan, of course, the, the son of Ham, and uh, he's predicting events that uh, don't take place until centuries uh, after his time. I mean, the, the open theists sometimes say that you can make a good, good guess the way pundits do by extrapolating the uh, various trends that are going on today. But uh, that's clearly not what Noah was doing. I mean, he was predicting things like the conquest of, of Canaan by Israel that the uh, uh, didn't take place until many centuries, many generations after his own time, and this is clearly uh, because of uh, uh, because of God. And then you have statements like, uh, uh, you know, in First John, uh, if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows all things. <laughs> okay, uh, kind of a proof text for uh, uh, God's uh, 
omniscience. Uh, uh, the uh, Hebrews four, uh, God is uh, God's word is living and powerful and penetrates uh, even to the dividing of the soul and spirit and joints and marrow and knows the thoughts and intents of our hearts. Uh, uh, you know, uh, God's uh, knowledge is, is just so comprehensive and so deep that uh, uh, there's really nothing that escapes his attention. Uh, uh, Psalm 139 uh, goes into that, uh, uh, too. But, uh, of course, uh, you know, and, and again, uh, the, the emphasis on that God loves believers uh, before the foundation of the world uh, means that he has an eternal knowledge of them, not just knowledge of what's going to happen, but mm. uh, knowledge in the sense of uh, uh, friendship, knowledge in the sense of uh, uh, of uh, family relationship, caring for them, and so on. And that's even, even greater than propositional knowledge. Sure, and then of course there's what I think is one of the most powerful verses in all scripture on this topic, which is, uh, it, which is when uh, uh, in Acts four, I believe it is, where it said that uh, Pontius Pilate, uh, Herod, and, and, and the Jews and the, and the Romans did everything that their hand was predestined to do when it came to uh, executing the Messiah. Um, I don't, <laughs> you know. Anyway, that's right, that's that's powerful. That's uh, kind, of, kind of it's repeated in uh, well Acts two and then Acts four. As well, and of course, uh, there's a relationship between uh, the word foreknowledge is used there. And I think the term foreknowledge means uh, something more than simply knowing the fact beforehand. But right. uh, uh, it's, it's God uh, foreordaining uh, what's going to happen. It's also remarkable because, of course, this is the, the grave crime of all history. You know, the, the uh, uh, crucifixion of the Son of God and. Uh, and yet uh, it makes plain in those verses that God is the one behind it, that God made it happen. And, uh, you, know, you know, I mean, all the passages that deal with God's uh, foreordination or God's predestination of things, uh, uh, you know, God doesn't predestine things ignorantly. <laughs> we <laughs> predestine things uh, uh, where there's predestination, there's also knowledge. Uh, uh, what God predestines, he also knows what's going to happen. So Yeah. Well, now, how, how do open theists typically respond to these texts that seem to indicate how perfectly and exhaustively God knows the future? And, and, and why don't you think that their answers are uh, sufficient? Well, that's, uh, I think they tend to dance around these questions. I don't think that they deal very carefully or very thoroughly with these uh, these texts. They, they usually seem to think that there's some, some implicit uh, uh, parenthesis, some some kind of implicit qualification that the, uh, there is uh, uh, in these in these passages, or that it's uh, uh, kind of figurative that maybe the passage is overstating or exaggerating the degree of God's knowledge. Uh, it's kind of interesting that the that the two parties, uh, uh, one one party takes a group of texts literally, and another group of texts figuratively, and then the other party kind of reverses it and takes the, uh, the the literal text of the first party and interprets them figuratively. And so you get into that kind of argument, which is, is rarely very <laughs> very helpful. But uh, but I do think that... Uh, uh, but, of course, you know, there, there are ways. I mean, they, they can uh, uh, use the, the Molinist route, which is that God's knowledge is kind of a general knowledge of what may happen under all... Under, uh, any number of circumstances, and uh, but it's not a specific kind of knowledge of what actually will happen. But, but I don't think that's fair to the text that we're talking about. Yeah. Well, now, open theists, and in fact, other proponents of libertarianism as well, I've noticed, like to call this view of free will what they call genuine or significant, real, authentic. But is there another view of freedom, one which is just as real, just as genuine, which still which still leaves humans morally responsible, but which better fits with this avalanche of texts that we've talked about and doesn't suffer from many of your other objections to open theism as well? Yeah, well, there's a view that's sometimes called compatibilism because it's compatible with uh, divine foreordination. I, I prefer to just call it common sense of freedom. <laughs> uh, you know, when we... Uh, when we talk about doing things freely, when I say, say of my son, if he does something wrong, I say, well, you did, you made that your free choice, you know, you you did what you want, and and all that means is you did what you wanted to do, you know, right. you, you you made a choice based on what you 
what you wanted to do, and, and Scripture is plain that uh, we have freedom in that sense. I mean, Eve uh, in the Garden of Eden uh, took the fruit uh, that was forbidden to her, and she did it because that's what she wanted to do. She saw that the fruit was uh, good to, to uh, uh, eat and to make one wise and so on, and so she took a bite. Well, sure, we we do these things because we want to do them, and, and certainly that that's our normal meaning of, of free choice. I mean, we don't uh, usually say that free choice means that there are absolutely no causes in your decision. Uh, you know, how would anybody know that? I mean, how do you prove a negative? How do you mm. know that there's, there's no cause to the decision that you made? Uh, generally, we, we say that people make free choices if they do what they want to do, and, and most of the time, uh, you know, we have that kind of freedom, and uh, and of course that's that's an important kind of freedom. You know, choose you this day whom you will serve, says uh, Joshua. People, uh, we we do need to choose uh, in our behavior. We make free choices in that sense uh, in in uh, uh, choosing to uh, to obey God rather than man, and so it has tremendous theological importance as well. Sure. Now, I, I, I want to keep talking about this issue of freedom for a second. I didn't put this in the questions that I sent you because it just dawned on me now, but the other issue that it seems to me that is stressed by libertarians is the concept of there being the possibility of the other choice having been made, and they'll say that it's not a genuine choice if you couldn't have possibly made the other choice. But here's the thing that strikes me. If I had a choice between two doors in front of me, or if I thought that I had the choice between two doors and I choose one of them, I'm making a free will choice, it seems to me, even if, as, even if had I gone and opened the other door, I would have discovered there wasn't a door there. You know what I mean? In other words, if, if I choose to, a choice, if I choose to do something, it doesn't matter if the, other, if the alternative would, was, was really possible, right? Yeah, well, the question, of course, is uh, if I choose uh, door A, uh, would it have been possible for me also to choose door B? Uh, and whether door B is a, is a decoy, <laughs> whether it's a real door or not, really doesn't make too much difference. But the uh, question is, uh, are, are these really alternative choices? Could I make one choice uh, having made the other one? And, uh, I, you know, uh, in, in many cases, uh, that's true. I mean, I, I tell my son, uh, hey, you, you dropped your... Uh, my, my son made pizza and he left the of a door open all night after he went to bed. And uh, I say, well, you didn't have to do that. I mean, you might have done it the other way. You might have closed the oven door, and, and he would have to admit that. But, uh, again, that's something very different, and sometimes that's important. I mean, uh, uh, sometimes that's important to uh, determining if a choice is really free. You, you had the opportunity to do A, but you did B instead. And so you're to blame for it. So that's kind of what the uh, open theists are, are appealing to. Uh, but uh, you know, that's very different from saying that you don't have freedom unless you, uh, unless there were no causes behind your choice, or if you could have just equally, obviously, you know, completely, uh, uh, freely done the other thing. I mean, the reason why, why my son. Uh, uh, made the choice he made was because there's a certain amount of sin in his heart. Right. So it wasn't totally arbitrary. It wasn't totally uh, without cause. Yeah, no, I agree. Well, now you discuss a whole bunch of other issues in your book, uh, the irresistibility of God's will, his relationship to time, whether he changes and whether he suffers. But I don't want to take up too much of your time, and I'll encourage my listeners to pick this book up as well as uh, Doctrine of God. But I do want to ask you two final questions about this book before we wrap up. First, how do we Reformed believers, as well as other classical theists, address texts which open theists claim teach God's ignorance of certain future events, or which God says he changes his mind, or that he remembers and forgets? How can we respond to, uh, to those passages? Well, uh, you have to look at them individually. Uh, a lot of these passages uh, really do raise problems for open theists, because, uh, for example, uh, Abraham takes his son, Isaac uh, to sacrifice him in obedience to God's command, and uh, he uh, he does what, of course, God uh, stops him at the last minute and provides the ram as a substitute. But uh, then then God says, uh, "Now I know that your heart is faithful," 
Now, does this mean that God didn't know before? I mean, that's I've heard open theists say that, that uh, God really didn't know mm. uh, before Abraham made that decision. So God was kind of awaiting um, Abraham's decision. And uh, you, you have to be really careful about that, because the open theists, what the open theists want to say is that God knows everything about the present, but he doesn't know everything about the future. <laughs> uh. Now, in the Abraham example, uh, if we take it the way the open theists want us to, uh, we're saying that uh, God didn't even know the present. I mean, he didn't know the state of Abraham's heart. Mm. Uh, or in the, in the Sodom story, you know, God says, well, I'm, I'm going to go down in order to see if... Uh, this outcry is, uh, has risen from sin that's as bad as I've heard. So, uh, uh, so presumably, I mean, uh, the open theist interpretation is that God didn't know at that point, and God had to go down and find out. Well, that's that's divine ignorance of the present. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, and of course, uh, that's also divine ignorance of the past in a way because God. Uh, doesn't know some of the past events that have uh, led up to uh, the present state of affairs, or else he'd know what the present state of affairs is. <laughs> so uh, this was really a very severe challenge to God's knowledge, and uh, uh, I, I don't know how anybody can claim to be a Christian in the historical sense, uh, uh, you know, doing doing that uh, with regard to God's knowledge. So I think there, there are other ways of taking these passages. I think often in passages like this, God is assuming his role as the judge, and he's collecting evidence. Hmm. And to say that, uh, and when he goes down to Sodom, he, he's saying, I'm going to collect evidence. I'm going to prepare an indictment. And uh, uh, I, I want to be there. You know, I want to be present. I want to be looking on the scene. And the uh, uh, so my judgment will be credible, and uh, uh, and the same thing with regard to the Isaac passage. Uh, uh, God was testing Abraham. I mean, everybody recognizes that this is a test that God was giving to Abraham. God wasn't uh, uh, trying to uh, refresh his own knowledge there. He was trying to uh, uh, provide a, a a test as to whether uh, Abraham was really faithful. So I think most of the passages that we uh, we can talk about can be dealt with in that kind of way. Yeah. Well, and, and regardless, it seems to me that these, it seems to me anyway, that these, these comprise a small minority uh, of text in Scripture compared with the avalanche that we talked about a moment ago, and, and you only give a small spattering of of, uh, of those texts. It's all across the Bible, so it definitely seems to me that we should oh, yeah. be interpreting the minority in, in, in light of the majority. Uh, but, but, fi but finally, what do you see as the impact of open theism on other areas of systematic theology? Uh, title The chapter 13 of your book is called, uh, Is Open Theism Consistent with Other Biblical Doctrines? Do you think that it is? Well, I, I mentioned a number of things there. Uh, the uh, let's see, I've got, I've got <laughs> chapter thirteen here in front. Of me. Yeah, but one is biblical inspiration. I mean, uh, uh, we believe uh, in Orthodox Christianity that the Bible is the Word of God. That the Bible is the very voice of God. That the Bible, uh, of course, uh, contains prophecies. It contains uh, uh, contains anticipations of the future. And, uh, of course, uh, God is uh, uh, able to speak with absolute authority uh, in, in the traditional view, but in uh, open theism, God is ignorant of many future events, and, and probably, uh, I mean, he's ignorant of things that are going to happen through history and ignorant of things that are going to happen in the, in the end times, since, of course, uh, you know, these things depend upon free human decisions, don't they? I mean, we're going to, uh, uh, even the time of uh, Jesus' return depends upon uh, the conversion of the nations, and if the nations are converted only through their own free choices in the libertarian sense, uh, God doesn't know when that's going to happen, so God uh, has no way of uh, preparing for the, for the end times. And uh, I mentioned here that uh, sometimes, uh, I mean, this is one of the scandals of open theism, that uh, the open theist God sometimes 
gives bad advice uh, <laughs> because uh, Gregory Boyd at one time uh, uh, talks about uh, the experience of one woman that he can uh, that he counseled, and uh, uh, he uh, says that uh, uh, God uh, told her to do something. Well, I'm not sure that God told her to do something, but it turned out to be turned out to be uh, disastrous, and uh, Boyd concludes that, well, God may have said that to this lady, but uh, God didn't know what was going to happen in the future. God really can't speak truly. You know, God misleads, and that's a very serious kind of problem uh, uh, for us. And, of course, uh, you know, there are other doctrines that are important, the doctrine of... uh, uh, sin. Uh, libertarians uh, don't really believe that our our, our sin can be uh, the result of Adam's transgression, uh, because uh, sin can only come about through libertarian free choices uh, mm-hmm. of our own. And similarly, I mean, if God cannot uh, impute the sin of Adam to us, uh, he can't impute the righteousness of Christ to us. It all yeah. has to. Our righteousness has to come through our own choices, so that would convert the whole gospel into a uh, doctrine of works righteousness. And I'm sure they don't want to do that, you know. I mean, that goes, <laughs> goes against their instincts as Christians, and I I certainly don't uh, question the, their Christian commitment in their hearts, but uh, I, I think the things they say, I mean, they really haven't thought through uh, how disastrous uh, these doctrines can be when you start to uh, uh, start to uh, apply them to the various uh, other doctrines. I mentioned uh, heaven and hell here. Uh, uh, Origen, who was one of the church fathers, uh, was so hepped uh, on free will that he thought that uh, uh, even after we get to heaven, uh, we would still have free will to sin. I mean, if, <laughs> if free will is such a wonderful gift of God, he certainly wouldn't take it away from us when we get to heaven, so we, we would still have the free will to sin, and then that would... Uh, uh, require another redemption, and we just keep going <laughs> on and on uh, uh, again and again and again, reenacting the whole story, whereas, uh, of course, traditional theology says that in heaven we will not be able to sin. Right. But if you're going to take take free will to be the fundamental you know, characteristic, the great gift that God has given to all of us, uh, uh, then you, you can't even maintain a, an orthodox view of uh, the new heavens and the new earth. So... I, I just think there's so many areas in which uh, open theism uh, compromises the, the scriptures. Sure, yeah. Well, well, let's wrap up. Uh, just how important do you think this debate is? Well, why do you think that it's important that we fall down on the right side of the divide, you know, the divide between open theism and classical theism and, and between libertarian free will and compatibilistic free will? Well, I guess the most, I mean, I've explained uh, in the last few minutes uh, how <laughs> fundamental all of this is and how many uh, how much of uh, Christianity is uh, based on this issue and uh, uh, but you know I mean uh, if you want to summarize what, what's most precious about the gospel it's the grace of God and uh, what what I think is an open theism if you try to take it seriously it really uh, again exchanges grace for works that mm-hmm. uh, turns the, the spotlight from what God does for us to what we do for ourselves by making our free choices, and God really doesn't have control, and, and God is kind of forced to sit up in heaven and, and look down on us to find out what we will do, and uh, I think that's just horrible. I mean, that takes away all our assurance, that takes away all our uh, worship. I mean, uh, we, we go to worship because we, we praise God, that it's, it's all of Him, and it's not not anything of us, so uh, it would just change the whole character of uh, Christianity, turning it into a works religion like Islam or uh, or Buddhism or something like that. Yeah. All right. Well, what other resources would you recommend to my listeners and me who want to learn more about this issue? But books that you've written or books written by other authors, websites, anything like that. Well, my book uh, uh, on the, the doctrine of God is, of course, a larger book that. Uh, uh, presents a, a, a general doctrine of God that uh, incorporates uh, a lot of what I said about open theism. There, there are a number of uh, books that, uh, especially you know, things that were written maybe uh, 
about 10 years ago to <laughs> uh, take up these issues. Uh, 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 there was a, yeah, well, I'm looking at the doctrine, uh, at the book called Bound Only Once, edited by uh, uh, Douglas Wilson. It uh, contains a number of essays, uh, including some by me, but there, there are quite a number of them. Uh, uh, as a, uh, Bruce Ware's book I, I like very much, the Southern Baptist uh, uh, man, and uh, uh, his book uh, is called uh, uh, the uh, God's Lesser Glory, I think it's called, uh, on the idea that uh, uh, open theism lessens the glory of God. Mm. And uh, there's there's a book by uh, called Beyond the Bounds, uh, edited by John Piper and Justin Taylor. Um, the subtitle is Open Theism and the Undermining of Biblical Christianity. Uh, and uh, oh, those are those are some of the ones that I, I think are, are most helpful. Okay. And do you have a website of your own? Is there somewhere where my listeners can go to find your home on the web, so to speak, to to get their hands on any articles that you might have written, stuff like that? Yeah, I'm. Uh, I share a website with Vern Poitras, who is a colleague of mine at Westminster in Philadelphia, uh, and uh, the website is called. Uh, www dot frame hyphen poitras that's p o y t h r e s s dot org. Okay, great. Well, I've really appreciated your time today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Chris. I've enjoyed talking to you. Well, I hope you enjoyed the interview as much as I did. Uh, I'm trying to work on getting a debate set up between an open theist and a reformed theologian. Uh, But in the meantime, next episode, I'll be publishing part two of the Jehovah's Witness debate. Until then.